Welcome to the Volcast, presented by The Racing Lineup, your personalised motorsport calendar. This is a podcast where a Scotsman, an Irishman and two Englishmen talk about motorsport. My name's Dave and I'm joined by our resident Irishman, Scott. Hello. And in no particular order, our resident Englishman, Nick. Hello. And Sim. Hello. This week we'll be talking about F1 testing and do a bit of a recap on a couple of small sports car stories as well. As we record this, uh, day three of F1 testing is going on. We've still got six hours to go, so there's probably a couple of drain covers that are going to feature during this podcast. Uh, I'm going to hand straight over to Sim. F1 testing, what have we learned? And given it's testing, what have we not learned? Well, as usual, Dave, you're not going to learn a lot from testing. Um, So far, Carlos Sainz has put the fastest time in at the end of day two. He's currently seven tenths faster than Sergio Perez in second and then the rest of the pack is between a second and two seconds back there. Ferrari are looking good, they're looking quick but the caveat here is that Max has not been in the car since uh, Wednesday day one testing where he was a second faster than anybody else. Carlos's fast time was set on a softer tyre than everybody else as well. Realistically he's maybe a tenth up on Red Bull currently. I'd expect that gap to disappear when Max gets back in the car again uh, this afternoon most likely. Uh, Red um, Ferrari have been looking good on long runs, though. Uh, Mark Hughes did some great analysis uh, over at the race, where he expects Ferrari to be 57 seconds up on Perez if the race was to be run tomorrow. Um, but again, the caveat there is that that's a Red Bull being driven by Sergio Perez, not Max Verstappen. And I think, um, yeah, despite my reservations and fanboyism, I think Max is going to add a couple of uh, attempts at least to that speed. So does that mean we're expecting Max to lap everybody then? If you know Perez is 57 seconds a minute behind a Ferrari, Max is going to be, what, two minutes up the road somewhere, probably. The noise is coming out of Red Bull that they've made, uh, they've found some time over the winter, which is quite scary in a car, which is already so much faster than everybody else in the grid anyway. I mean, I think it's incredibly brave of them to completely redesign the car. Given that last year's car was that good, why did they take the risk for this year? I think they always want to push, don't they? It's Red Bull. Um, it's the old F1 adage. If you're not moving forwards, you're standing still. Um, I think some of this could be uh, the effects of Red Bull powertrain stealing all the Mercedes staff. Um, it's probably no coincidence that they've gone towards the zero pod concept that Mercedes were running. They've probably found some cooling gains on the engine side, which have allowed them to reduce that. It's not a complete zero pod co- concept like Mercedes was. There are side pods there, but yeah, it does look like they've found some gains in the cooling, which obviously leads to lower drag, which is uh, something that the uh, Red Bull never struggled with anyway, let's be honest. I, I think that it's uh, it, it was definitely an interesting choice. I think it partly driven by the fact that, you know, they wrapped everything up so early last year and they basically stopped developing the 2023 car quite early in the season so they did have the time to start looking at the 2024 car and uh, I do find it interesting that they have gone for a Mercedes approach when everybody else Mercedes included has kind of decided to go for a Red Bull approach uh so I'm really not sure what's going to happen this year but they certainly seem pretty quick yeah it's funny we've seen this convergence towards this Red Bull concept over the past year 18 months and then just as everyone's getting on top of that, Red Bull themselves have just moved away from it entirely. 
and look to have gone to some concepts that Mercedes have abandoned because they couldn't get them to work. Does that mean Red Bull are going to do a better job from initial testing? It looks like they probably have. Is this where the cost cap actually becomes a bit of a problem? Red Bull were so far ahead that they were able to kind of abandon development of last year's car pretty early and start on this year's car, which gave them a nice head start. And now nobody's got the additional funds to catch up because they've started months behind the months behind the championship leaders. Is the cost cap a negative thing now? I, I don't know. And if teams have all gone down this one route, which Red Bull pioneered and led, Red Bull presumably have only moved away from it because they hit the natural limit of that concept. So have they just gone, they've taken it one step further again now? I think, yes, maybe they have reached the limit of it. Maybe they've kind of developed themselves into a corner and have decided to do this. But it's also worth considering that this, Bahrain is a very, you know, it's quite a flat, it's quite a, I guess, a polite circuit for a racing car. Um, whether or not this concept works at like really bumpy tracks like Brazil or like Singapore, which were both tracks that really exposed the weaknesses in the Red Bull over the last couple of years uh, and Monaco uh, as well, to an extent, it, it's, it, it remains to be seen whether they'll actually be able to make this concept work on every circuit but given the speed that they have even if they dial a bit of performance out of it it does seem like they're really really far ahead although what about ferrari are ferrari in the mix well that was going to be my next question it appears to be that the general consensus is the ferrari is second so it seems to be a red bull ferrari and then everybody else and then Haas. i'm sure we'll come to them later on but it does seem to be that consensus is the Ferrari is second. Sainz appears to be having quite a good time, better than Leclerc, who's just collecting grain covers for, for a weekend. But like right now, Sainz is leading day three, and they were already talking earlier about it being a decently long run on C3. So it's a decent fuel load he's running with as well. And that car is quite good. Probably not Red Bull standard, but certainly good. I mean, it's at least as good as Perez. Or, or at least fifty seconds, fifty-seven <laughs> seconds quicker than Perez. So, but but whether that's on the, on par with Max, I don't know. And I guess we'll we'll find out this afternoon whenever they uh, whenever Max gets back in the car. I think the the interesting one for me is Mercedes because George and Lewis are both making the same noises about this car is good, but it doesn't look like it is in the times. And obviously, it's testing and all the rest of it, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't look like it's good. But both drivers are sitting saying, yeah, this car is good. This is much better than last year. Like, that's interesting. When are we actually going to see evidence of that? I think for Mercedes, the biggest thing last year was rear instability. Both drivers complained about them not being able to predict what the, the back of the car was going to do at any point. And the noise is coming out this year so far that that's gone. They've fixed that issue, which should allow them to go on and extract more out of the car overall. Um, I mean... We're all sat here saying Mercedes is a terrible car last year. They still finished second in the Constructors' Championship. And, you know, they were close to the year before. So it's not like it's a terrible car by Mercedes standards. It's a terrible car by Red Bull standards. But it's still a good F1 car. Uh, I definitely think it's a good car if you have Lewis Hamilton and George Russell in the car. I, I think if you had, if, if that car was the Alpine, 
it would probably be near the back. <laughs> it's a, a fair point that they finished second in the championship last year because they probably shouldn't have. I don't think that car was as good as the Ferrari, but Ferrari happened quite a lot last year, which stopped them finishing second in the championship. So with a slightly improved car, it kind of solidifies that if Ferrari don't get things together. Not only did they finish second in the championship okay, with a gap to Red Bull, they finished second in the championship with a very early in the season concept switch well, around Monaco. And it was a hampered concept switch as well, just adapted onto the existing monocoque. No substantial changes really, just re-architecture of the side pods and the front suspension. Now they've finally been able to put all of that learning into a full car for the full season. So it makes sense that there has well, been I think an improvement. You're, you're right that Mercedes definitely did switch the concept, but for me, the, the team that switched concept and got the most out of it was McLaren, who I can't really get a read on them at the minute. I don't know if they're second fast or if they're maybe fourth fastest, but either way, this is their first full year with this car concept, and I would like to hope now that they've got a good at least a year's worth of development on it, they would know how to make it work. That's kind of what I was going to ask next. If you've got the, the top three that we've all kind of decided, you've got Red Bull, Ferrari, and Mercedes up there. After that, it's a kind of jumbled mess. Like every so often a McLaren looks fast. But right now, Stroll's sitting fourth. So is the Aston actually really good? But Fernando was 12th yesterday. you got Albon sitting up there kind of level with Norris. So is the Williams better than we thought? Kick Salber stake, don't know what it's called. Is that any good? The RB, we're not saying visa stuff. Like, is that any good? We've got this kind of mix after the top three, and I don't really know who's sitting where. I mean, I would probably add McLaren into the 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 second group of post Red Bull. You know, I sort of see that they're they're probably at a similar pace to Ferrari ish possibly a bit quicker than Mercedes. And after that, I mean, it's sort of similar to what we saw even in the standings last year. You do have that big group of uh, of midfield that's very midfieldy, and on a different day, anybody could be quickest out of Alpine, Alfa Romeo, slash Kick, slash Cyber, slash, oh no, it's not Steak anymore, um, and whoever else happens to be in the midfield that day. Yeah, it's a, it's a fair point about McLaren. Sort of forget how vast and how meteoric the rise actually was last year recovering from being absolutely nowhere at the beginning of the season to what matching red bull over the course of the last sort of 10 races or so in terms of points all admittedly because of perez's lack of scoring but still and they do have this fantastic driver lineup with lando norris and oscar piastri it's hard not to be impressed by him his start was a little shaky perhaps but he's really grown throughout his his career so far I mean I think that you know we all talk about we can't really learn anything from testing and it's kind of true but also kind of not true I mean there is we definitely know that Haas aren't going to win the first race you know we definitely know that Red Bull are pretty quick so you know, we can still learn a bit from testing. So what what can we actually learn from testing? What's what's definite? I'll tell you one thing we can learn from testing, Scott, and that's how the cars look livery-wise on track because I think that's the only thing that you, you can take away from testing. I'm just looking at last year's uh, testing times and I'll, I'll just run through them team by team. So first was Red Bull. 
Second, Mercedes. Okay, fairly accurate so far. Third was Valtteri Bottas in the Alfa Romeo. Followed up by Sauber. Followed up by Yuki Tsunoda in this the Alfa Tauri. Then Haas. Then Aston Martin. Then all the way down at the bottom, you had your Williams, Alpine and McLaren. So it's, it's safe to say, if you're looking at times alone, that it's not very representative, really. And was that when Sonoda used DRS everywhere? Or was that the year before? I can't remember. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was one lap where he set, a, he set this ridiculous time at Bahrain. And it turned out he was just using DRS on every straight. And, and, but people were built, building up this story like, Sonoda, yeah, he looks decent. You remember that lap in testing? So yeah, he, he cheated. But, you know. He was just playing on easy mode. Yeah. <laughs> so no one's stopping me press this button. It's brilliant. Um, I had I had forgotten that uh, Aston were that slow at the end of testing last year, or at least didn't have the time. Uh, you know, considering how uh, how dominant they were underneath Red Bull uh, at the start of last year, um, there was a lot of noise about how good the Aston Martin was going to be, uh, you know, around testing and before the car launch. But it took a little while to actually see it, and then they rock up at the first round, and yeah, Alonso's on the podium. I think what Aston it. suffered from was like a massive drop off in performance as the year went in. Everybody else moved forward and they didn't. Uh, whether that's because they weren't developing the car, they whatever, I don't know. But they started a lot stronger than they finished. Yeah, they had some developments. It went the wrong way, didn't it? Or they did. And it just didn't quite work as they expected. They've got a new simulator coming online for sort of next year. There's a lot of tools that are being upgraded at, at Silverstone. So can they get it right this year is the question. I mean, if all of this stuff is coming into, you know, coming into play at the end of this year, you know, it's going to really have an effect for next year, the following year. It's, it's a clearly a long-term plan, but do you see Alonso being involved in that two, three years down the line? I think that depends whether he can get himself into that second Mercedes seat, really. I think that's probably his ultimate aim, isn't it, now? I think um, if Alonso managed to get himself into the second Mercedes seat, knowing Alonso's track record, they would immediately leave Formula 1 or something. <laughs> yeah. it, would be a, it would be a peak Alonso move, yeah. It'd be a peak Alonso move to sort of leave right now when the facilities are up, being upgraded, they've got the simulator coming in. This is the first year really of Dan Fallow who's been their TD, the technical director. There's a lot of stuff that should just dovetail into a very successful Aston Martin program, probably through the end of this year and next year as well. So, yeah. Well, I guess the question that he should ask himself is, <clears throat> is this is Aston Martin on the way up or the way down? And is Mercedes on the way up or the way down? And it kind of seems that the, there's considerable investment in Aston Martin, so that does seem to be a team on the way up. Mercedes at least seems to have kind of plateaued as maybe the third fastest car. Don't know. This year will be an interesting year to see whether this, you know, whether this year's car is any better. I mean, I think he, to be honest, I think he'd be mad to go to Mercedes, but I could totally understand why he would want to go to Mercedes. Well, I think uh, the is the Mercedes on the way up question gets really complicated given that Lewis is leaving at the end of the year because then it, even if they are on the way up, how much is Lewis bringing to that? Because we know from like, like Schumacher days and things like that, it's like good world champions bring a lot to a team. So if you lose Lewis from that, 
does it actually have a big effect? Is it going you know, to have a positive effect on Ferrari? Can can you have a massive positive effect on Ferrari whilst they're Ferrari? You know, it's like the Mercedes question is really complicated by Lewis leaving at the end of the year. Yeah, not only Lewis leaving. I mean, it's going to create this huge gulf naturally. Seven or eight-time world champion leaving your team. Who's he going to take with him? Who's going to leave because he's left? You know, people are going to go to Ferrari for sure. Is he going to take some of the bigger name engineers with him, potentially? You know, people he works with on a day-to-day, some of them are going to go. Who's he going to suggest should be taken from the factory? Uh, who's just going to leave or go to Aston Martin? Or some people are probably going to go to McLaren. It could be a real brain drain for Mercedes. We've already seen it on the powertrain side a little bit with Red Bull powertrains taking people. And, and on the subject of powertrains, let's not forget that Aston Martin are moving engine suppliers uh, shortly as well, as they move to the Honda engine in a couple of years. I mean, is, is Fernando really wanting to drive a Honda engine again? Um, are they going to go backwards as they get up to speed with the integration there? Whereas obviously Mercedes have already got the, the integration with the chassis and uh, engine teams. So something else he might be considering as well there. Was the Honda engine the one that he referred to as the Formula 2 engine? The GP2. Yeah, it was the, the <laughs> GP2, GP2 engine. Yeah. I couldn't remember if he was upset at Honda or Renault back then, because I think he was upset at both at one point. He was just raging against the entire world at that point, wasn't he, in 14th place, uh, for understandable reasons. Um, Given that, you know, it it really looks like there's a lot of investment into Aston Martin. You know, they've got the new engine supplier. You know, they do have Alonso for now. They seem to have a pretty good car. It kind of always raises the question, and this did come up in the middle of last year, what about that other seat? Lance Stroll is currently in it. it. His seat is safe, but are Aston Martin ever going to win a world championship with Lance Stroll in the car? As our uh, resident Lance Stroll fan, uh, I'm going to say his time is still limited in the car. Um, those who know me will know I've defended Lance Stroll quite a bit, but my defence have ended him ended last year because he just wasn't pulling his weight anymore. Before, I felt he was getting criticised for being as bad as any other driver on the grid. He was making the same kind of mistakes that you would see Ocon or Gasly do or whatever. I felt it was a little bit unfair, but last year was not good enough. It just wasn't. Yeah, I'm a fan of what Lance Stroll has done with no natural ability and the work ethic <laughs> he's managed to put in to get to where he is now. So, you know, respect to him for that. But you put him up against even Sebastian Vettel had at the end of his career, not that when he wasn't really that interested, he still had Stroll covered, let's be honest. Then you put Alonso in there with a bit of fire behind him and he's just absolutely decimated Stroll, as you sort of expect, really. But yeah, you'd have to say his time in that seat is naturally limited. There's only so long Lawrence can keep him in there because Lawrence reports to a board and has shareholders and stuff. There's going to be pressure on him to you know just take his son out of the car at a certain point. I think Lance suffered with the rules transition quite a lot. Kind of how we've seen it when we went from the V8s to the V6 turbos and Vettel really struggled because he couldn't just plant the throttle in his Red Bull anymore, whereas Ricardo was a bit better at that. Stroll was all right with the previous rule set, and then we moved to this rule set, and he just can't drive them. It just doesn't work for him. It's not necessarily a criticism. It's just how it is. But he doesn't suit these cars, and if they don't suit the car, you're not going to get the results. And if you don't get the results, you shouldn't be in the car. 
Yeah, it probably makes sense. You know, all for his junior career, even when he had stronger cars than everyone else, they were all very sort of conventional formula cars, no ground effect. They were a little softer than they are now. They all had that sort of high sidewall on the tyre as well. And this last regulation shift in F1 has been momentous. It's changed absolutely everything. And it's exposing a weakness in his skill set, I guess. Maybe he'll get there for the through the course of this year. You know, I mean, I'd expect him to close the gap a little bit just because of how far away he's been. But where he can actually get to, we'll see. Obviously, he has struggled in the, in the past, but his struggles aren't as bad as, say, Daniel Ricciardo at the, in McLaren, who really, really struggled. Now, this is his, I guess, his first full year back to racing. How do we expect he's going to do in that team up against Yuki Tsunoda and is he hunting for that second Red Bull seat in 2025? Up against the mighty Yuki Tsunoda, yeah. I think he's hunting for the second Red Bull seat by Monaco this year, to be honest, never mind 2025. But I think he's wanting to take advantage of the fact that Red Bull go off drivers extremely quickly and have gone off Perez but kept him around. I think he's after that seat. Whether he should be in that seat or not is another discussion because I don't really think he was that amazing on his return. Now, okay, fair enough. He came in halfway through the season. Then he got injured. It's hard to judge somebody on half a season with an injury in the middle as well. But I'm not quite seeing why we would replace Perez with Daniel Ricciardo, if I'm honest. I think there's been there's been a lot of rumours about who would take that seat. You know, a couple of weeks ago it was... Um... You know, there was rumours that Alex Albon had signed a deal to come back to Red Bull, uh, which seems like a strange move. Um, If only there was maybe a a driver in a top team uh, who was being replaced by a seven-time world champion at the end of this year, uh, who was looking for a drive for next year. Uh, With Red Bull history as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely he has that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be an interesting year because if Daniel Ricciardo doesn't perform up against Sonoda, then there's no hope of him getting the seat. Yeah, I think this first half season is going to be crucial for Ricciardo's imminent F1 future. I mean, I mean, I don't want to throw the age thing around because we're all older than he is, but he's not the youngest driver in the world now. He's approaching his mid-30s. He's not the spring chicken. You know, He's not going to be a long-term solution. Would you parachute him into the Red Bull? Possibly. I think the funny thing is, is like we're sitting here and we still look at RB as the kind of feeder team for Red Bull. In reality, Sunoda's not getting that seat ever. Like he's not moving into the Red Bull. So if Daniel doesn't beat Sunoda, then he's done. He's not getting the Red Bull either. And if he does beat Sunoda, then it's still not really guaranteed because you're just beating Sunoda, who's not lighting the world on fire at the moment. It's it's almost like a no-win going into that. But at the same time, it's be- that seat's better than no seat. So you might as well take it. And do you just put Ricardo in the seat anyway? He's not going to be worse than Perez. He's going to be better from a marketing point of view. Well, I think as well as that, Ricardo probably knows that he's not Max. He probably knows that he can't beat Max, but would like, you know, I guess coming back to Red Bull for him would be justification that the McLaren thing was just a blip. And if he managed to get back to a top team, scored the odd win here and there, I'd say he'd be happy with that. Yeah, the McLaren thing was really odd because you could see some fundamental errors in how he was just operating the vehicle. Maybe there was just a lack of support in McLaren, a lack of coaching. 
it seems like maybe he's got things under control a bit now. He's back in the Red Bull family. You, know, you hear noises coming out of their camp saying, you know, he's back to the old Daniel Ricciardo. You know, he's breaking like we remember and that sort of thing. Well, I'm going. I'm going to start it now. Uh, Ricardo to Ferrari, 2025. Well, <laughs> I mean, he has been linked to Ferrari in the past well, they're, uh, they're quite gonna, a few times. Well, kick Leclerc out, and that'll be that. I mean, I, I, I'd do it just for the, the crack, really. But so, by building on that, does that mean that you're saying Leclerc to Red Bull? Is that what we're doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think why not? Why not? I mean, science is a good shout, I think. Because he did beat Ricardo when they were teammates, and people seem to forget how good science actually is. He doesn't have the raw pace of a Charles Leclerc, but he's got the the racecraft and the race brain that you know over a season can match him easily. Well, over the season, that's the brain that wins the championship. Exactly. Even if it's not the the quickest, it's definitely it's the smartest. I mean, of the two of them, it, it, it's is you know it's very clear that Leclerc is faster, but. Science is smarter, and you, we, you know, that for me, the best illustration was this was at the end of Singapore when he was giving Lando the DRS just to make sure that George couldn't pass him. You know, I mean, that is smart racing, it is next level stuff. That is, yeah, I think uh, we've got a couple of teams that we should talk about that we're going to forget about if, if I don't read them off this list because frankly, they can be a bit anonymous <laughs> at times. <laughs> So Kick Salber stands out, and purely because I'm looking at the timing tower now, and they're bright green, so nice and obvious now. And we've got Alpine. Where do we see them fitting this year? Like strictly midfield, like not amazing, not terrible. They're just going to float around in the midfield. Yes. So what is it with Salber? It's the first of two transition years before they actually become Audi. If we still believe that's going to be a thing, it is still going to be a thing. Is it still but going to be they, a thing? Because I know that there was, there was somebody somebody left uh, quite recently in the last couple of days. Uh, yeah, and board the, the, level shenanigans, right? Yeah, I mean, the two big architects of the F1 project have now both left. Well, this appears to be a, a theme with Audi for the last few years in that the LMDH project was a thing and then was taken away. And then the customer racing for the GT4s, GT3s, they even built the GT2 R8 and sold a couple of them. And they said, yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to keep going with the customer racing. And they've kind of slowly killed that off as well. And now we're talking about F1, yeah. The LMDH program was, yeah, the LMDH program was advanced enough that it was more expensive to cancel it than to keep it going. Really? So, but so that that means Audi do have very recent previous for just killing a project, especially, and it's at the whims of the board change as well. So, people are right to be wary of it. But if if we just assume, yeah, if we assume it is going to happen, Cyber have to take a step up this year. They have to take another step up next year because Audi can't come in and be tooling around in fourteen. Well, 15. if if we assume that. Cyber, Audi, Kick, Stake, uh, whatever you want that team to be called, is basically in a holding pattern until 2026 uh, with kind of work going on behind the scenes. I would say that Alpine is probably in a similar-ish boat, but I think they get more out of F1 than F1 gets out of them. You know, they, they seem quite content to sit in the midfield and be 10th and pick up the odd podium here and there. You know, it seems to me that they don't really want to invest enough to want to, you know, take that team like right to the very top. Yeah, what are we with Alpine? 
they've had a hundred race plan, I think, to get to the front to be consistently challenging for podiums and wins. And they seem to reset it every year as people change in the leadership and that sort of thing. So if we're starting that over again, it's going to be another five years before Alpine get to the front. They need serious investment in the facilities. I mean, Enstone is tiny by modern Formula 1 factory standards. The people there are good. Can they make a real step forward from where they are? Not sure. Alpine's a funny one because they are a manufacturer. They are they are Renault just with the sport branding, but they don't feel like a manufacturer. They don't feel like you're watching a Mercedes, a Ferrari, and I'm going to include Red Bull in this, even though they manufacture soft drinks. You know, so like they're a manufacturer, but they don't feel like a manufacturer. And I don't know if that's just lack of commitment. Um, I don't know, but they certainly don't appear to be operating at the same level as the others. Yeah, and the the engine side of the program is interesting as well because it's sort of serviced by Mechachrome a little bit as well as, you know, the engines being sort of designed out of Veery, as they always have been, Renault Sport. So, yeah, they don't they don't feel quite as committed as your major manufacturers do. And it's gonna, the program's going to be limited by that, surely. And I think that part of that really shows in the driver lineup. You know, Gasly, Ocon, okay, they are both technically race winners. They have won races, <laughs> neither of which has been absolutely 100% on merit. Uh, but, you know, they did lose two of their best assets uh, at the end of 2022 in Alonso and Piastri that could have kind of catapulted that team at least up a few places. I mean, an Alonso Piastri in an Alpine lineup could have been an interesting one for this year or for next year, but they seem quite content with Gasly and Ocon. Yeah, and they're now quite interested in one of their junior drivers, whose name I can never remember because it isn't that interesting. But they're, they're very much hoping to not fall into this same trap that they is it, it's not Piastri it's not jack doing is it yeah, it's not jack doing it's the other one jack doing they're running for a simulator program this year and he'll he will progress he's decent but i don't think you probably swap a swap out a casley or an ocon for jack doing do you not feel like their driver choices are very political like nobody wants to say it but we've got two french drivers and a french team the team is not as good as it should be given it's manufacturer based like you say the drivers are both race winners but they don't look like championship material. Are they there for political reasons more than anything else? I mean, you could see the Gasly move coming from like four or five years ago, really, can you? I mean, if he left Red Bull, where's he going to go? Alpine's kind of the only place he could go. He's not going to go to Mercedes, Ferrari, McLaren. So have both of those drivers actually hit their limit anyway? Where are they going to go? post-Alpine if they left. If we go back to Kick with the same question, Kick, Sauber, Stake, BMW, whatever you want to call them, um, you've got Bottas and Guan Yu Zhou. Neither of them are going to go into the Audi seats, let's be honest. On the assumption that Audi turns up, neither of them are going to be factory Audi drivers. But we do know that Carlos Sainz Sr. is kind of heavily linked with Audi with the Dakar programme and all the rest of it. So is that where Sainz ends up? He goes he ends up in a, a kick Sauber until Audi turn up and then he ends up in an Audi. Yeah, I mean, you've seen this feeling, groundswell of feeling for science to Sauber, science to Audi for a long time now. And again, it's another one like the Gasly to Alpine thing. It just seems to make sense. It seems like a good fit. It probably haven't. So Carlos Sainz is the key to the driver market at the moment after this massive Lewis Hamilton move. I mean, it was there was quite a few rumours uh, last year and the year before that it was going to be Lando 
would go to ID and be the lead driver, and he would be great. He, I'd, you know, he would be great for any team, but you know, he's sort of long term at McLaren. So, I mean, science does make sense. I guess what he wants to do is he wants to do a a Lewis to for Lewis to McLaren, or sorry, Lewis to Mercedes kind of thing where you know you really develop that team and develop it into a world-class team given that you've got a lot of money from a german car company but i mean the the only team the only time that team has ever looked in any way convincing was whenever they had the bmw money and even still it it wasn't enough convincing that you would go this team can win world championships yeah, facilities-wise, they're still right up there. I mean, they've got a top-of-the-line simulator now. The wind tunnel's still one of the best in the world, and it's being upgraded, I think, as we speak. Uh, uh, Do you think they're being underused? Possibly. I and mean, that's where the Audi investment comes in, right? They're adding a lot of headcount, presumably the right people in the right places, although with the amount of poaching that goes on in F1, there's only so many people you can take from a Mercedes or a Red Bull. And especially if you want them to live in Switzerland, that is, I guess. That is one of the big limiting factors with Cyber, isn't it? If you, You've got to move to somewhere around Hinville. So, and all the, the, the real F1 brain is, let's face it, it's in, it's in England. It's in the Motorsport Triangle around Silverstone. It's a big ask. Uh, so there's going to be some big paychecks. I, mean, I, I, guess, I guess what they want to do is they want, I do want to do that classic manufacturer thing of throw a lot of money at a problem yeah uh, and hope that it works do you think Audi would have been better trying to start their own operation well that's a tough one i mean Audi, they never would have come in with their own team so that kind of is what it is cyber always the good option to slap some manufacturer branding on apparently Audi with a lot more with a lot more seriousness than the stickers we've had from alfa romeo I kind of forgot that Alfa Romeo yeah. was even a thing. Already. Yeah, already. It's just gone. I know that, yeah, <laughs> I, I know we're, we just lost them, but I'd completely forgotten yeah. about them already. Okay, someone talk to me about Williams because I have no opinion on them whatsoever. I'm sitting looking at Alex Albon is sitting in sixth. Pretty good. Yeah. But I, I, I have no opinion. The fun thing with Williams is how good is that car? Because how good do we think Alex Albon truly is? You know, from Red from well, Red Bull, you'd say no. From his junior career, you'd say, yeah, he's a competent driver. He's probably, you know, he could match a Leclerc or a Russell on his day. Has, when has I was listening back? to, uh, I was listening to Gary Anderson on the race podcast, and he, you know, he, when he was looking at the Williams, he said the Williams is ten years behind everywhere else. So you know, he just said, even in the way the car is engineered, it just looks really, really basic. Now, obviously, James Voss has only been there a year. Give it time, but you know, it seems that they they really need to ramp up. I don't know how good the car is. I would say it's probably. I mean, last year's car wasn't as good as Albon's results were. You know, he dragged that car to results that shouldn't have been happening in that car and partly that was out of luck and being in the right place partly out of just being a really good racing driver but you know when you combine a car that's not that great with logan Sargent, who i'm sure is an excellent racing driver but wouldn't quite be on the level of of an alex Albon. i really don't see williams getting into the top 10 maybe top 12 Here's a question then. So 
relative to resources, would you say the Williams is actually a good car relative to the investment they've had, the performance they've managed to drag out of it? Do Williams actually look like someone to watch over the next year or two as they get a bit more investment? You know, we've got big people throwing loads of money at, you know, an Aston Martin, even McLaren, really. There's some money going in there. Obviously, Mercedes, well, Ferrari, standard stuff, Red Bull. I think it's I think it's hard to say, and the, the the question really has to go to Darlton Capital. Obviously, they are in F1 to make money, and they will make money by selling their entry down the line. Um, but uh, uh, until that happens, they need to stump up a lot of cash, you know, to really bring that on, to bring that project up to speed. And whether they want to do that because they're in it to make money, they don't want to spend money. Who knows? they do want to spend that money and and upgrade the facilities and James Wells has been making a lot of noise about the uh, the capex rules under the cost cap um, that they physically can't go and spend that money they want to spend the money on facilities but it, it goes into the cost cap and unless the bigger teams who have that got that baked in advantage from years of investment without a cost cap uh, agree to let them spend that more more money they're going to be playing catch up but at the same time James Wells has been very clear that he's not interested in pushing for results this year or next year. He's looking at 2026, 20, 27, 28 down the line. And I think they're on track to, to meet those targets. Yes, yeah, so that comes back to Dave's earlier question. Is the cost cap actually a bit of a problem now? Does it bake in this disparity between teams that need investment versus the ones that have had it for the last 10, 20 years? I wasn't actually aware uh, of that issue with the cost cap there. When it, even when I posed the question of like the facilities and things like that, I kind of assumed that there was a another way of dealing with that. That is actually quite a massive issue because then there's absolutely no way that Williams can build something as good as Red Bull, for example. They're just not going to be able to do that. So in theory, they should never be able to compete with Red Bull. So we're, I think Nick worded it very well there. We're baking in a kind of running order through facilities almost. Yeah, there's a little bit of, well, there's quite a lot of money you can spend outside the budget cap on CapEx and things like that, but it's sort of a rolling thing, effectively. You know, if Williams need to spend $100 million, they can't just go and do it right now, even if they have the cash. You'd have to stagger it over many years, and then that's where the problem comes in, because Williams are so far behind. You could argue so, so are someone like Alpine and the facilities they have. I mean, I think the cost cap is... is uh... A, a difficult solution to an even more difficult problem. But I mean, let's say you remove the cost cap tomorrow. I, I could see, I could see Haas going out of business. I could probably see Williams going out of business in, in a way. It's a way to try and keep them there. Uh, you know, we don't want to go back to the days of having, you know, testing teams and uh, you know, several different race teams going around the world and, that's what racing teams will do. They'll try and spend their way to the top. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, cost cap's been a very good thing. I don't think there's any arguing against that. And obviously, if we just, did just remove it, then you'd have Red Bull spend 200 million on some new facilities because they've got money coming out of their ears. And like you say, it keeps hassing for now. Um, maybe we're not that interested in keeping <laughs> Hass around when we could have an Andretti Cadillac entry, but... That does bring us nicely to Haas, I suppose, and their lack of performance and 
probably an ever yeah, I mean, Magnussen said in the interviews yesterday, he said that we, we're not fast. But, you know, they have a new team principal. He, he, Magnussen also said that yesterday was the first time that Haas have ever run with an aero rake on the car <laughs> in testing, uh, which is quite impressive for a team that's been in now for, I don't know, uh, about six or seven years by Ten now. Yeah. 10 years oh god um <laughs> yeah i think you know i i don't know whether Ayokamatsu is going to change the world overnight this is going to be another kind of james files thing where it's very much wait and see you know he, he does seem like he's more of an engineering guy but i mean this year does not seem like a good year to be involved in house I mean, one thing they seem to have uh, been focusing on is fixing their tyre wear issue. Last season, quite often, Magnussen would somehow get through to Q3, stick it high up the grid, Hulkenberg. spend the race Hulkenberg would, because Hulkenberg's <laughs> very, yes. very, very good. Sorry, Hulkenberg would do that, and he'd spend the rest of the race going backwards. <laughs> um, and that's what they've uh, they've said. That's what they want to fix. How much of that was the fact that they have quite a lot of Ferrari parts and that, that was a trend that seemed to be very consistent with Ferrari last year as well? I think this is the only podcast in the world, by the way, where we all agree that Hulkenberg is one of the underrated drivers in Formula 1 and should be significantly... Greatest of all time. Cool. Hulkenberg, goat. Yeah. We need to start Confirm. talking about him. I mean, it, podcast title right I, I, I would say he's... He, he's definitely, this, yeah, this generation's Nick oh, Heidfeld. Yeah. <laughs> and we all know how good Nick Heidfeld is. So, you know. <laughs> I think we're all agreed that Haas are going to be bringing up the rear, unfortunately. If they fix their tyre wear issues, great. Unfortunately, the car's still slow. So it's now going to be consistently slow rather than slow and then get slower as the tyres wear. Yeah, at least now with Haas, the drivers aren't the problem. Magnussen is a solid racing driver. You know, we saw when he went away to sports cars briefly just how good he actually is. Hulkenberg is just brilliant, natural talent. You know, he's one of the one of the best that's never what been on a podium. Uh, so it, it's it's the car. Is there a future for that team? I mean, does that team, assuming that this year they finish last in the constructors and last in the drivers' championship? Uh, will uh, is it a holding pattern until Andretti buys the entry, or are they going to stick around? Is Gene has going to put some more money in? It seems like Gene's pretty happy just to let it exist because it make, it makes money. Yeah, it makes money fundamentally because of the cost cap, and it's a appreciating asset at this point. And you know, Gene probably needs a few of those in his life. So I guess that he's he's not going to be. You know, he'll just keep the team until somebody comes along with the the big money checkbook and says, "I would like to buy." Especially the in a world where we're apparently saying no to Andretti Cadillac, even though it's not a ten-team formula; it's a twelve-team formula, which people seem to be forgetting. It's the what? Which way around is it? Formula One seem to be treating it as if it's a ten-franchise thing, but it isn't. Which is why the FIA accepted the entry in the first place. So there should be twelve teams on the grid. I mean that's that's another that's an entire other podcast, which is Formula One versus the FIA, um, and the two of them seem to be on very different paths regarding an eleventh and twelfth team, and 
yeah. Recording this is giving me lots of ideas for other episodes as well. Like you say, FI versus Formula One. We're talking about the cost cap. I want to have a rant about engines and why they're so expensive and why people can't just bring back big, fat, naturally aspirated V12s or something like bring that. Bring back V10s, perchance. I mean, yeah, yeah. I believe there's a podcast about it. I think it's that. a good title, well. actually. Yeah. yeah, I've got one queued up that's uh, something about Jacques Villeneuve and Michael Schumacher and Estero. But I think at this point, we're 45 minutes in. It's probably time to move on to liveries because I'm going to have to edit this down to a sensible time and we've still got a couple of um, motorsports sports car things to cover. The liveries, other than carbon fiber, what are we thinking about these liveries? Right, so I've taken the liberty of ranking the liveries. Um, I love a, a good a good race car, colouring competition. Oh, yes. So I'll just throw them out there. You give, guys give me your thoughts on this. So 10th, probably like the speed, Haas. It's anonymous, it's black, it's white, it's got a little bit of red. You could line every Haas up they've ever built and I wouldn't be able to tell you what year it's from. <laughs> Apart from the one Grosjean. I mean, you could say the same about Red, say the same about red Bull yeah, as well. The, the only Haas that's memorable <laughs> is the one Grosjean shoved through some armco, isn't it, really? Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the Rich Energy one <laughs> as well. I forgot about that. <laughs> that's a podcast of its own as well, yeah. Rich Energy stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can I can I possibly disagree on your tenth place? Uh, starting Go starting on. at the very very back, uh, I would like to put the the kick cyber at the very very back. I think uh, at, at possibly this may sound slightly offensive to American listeners, but it sounds like it looks like a budget indie car. Well, you, you know what it looks like? It, it when I saw it, I thought it was the apex grand prix car from that brad pitt movie because it just doesn't look real. <laughs> it's like it's a carbon fiber bodge job with some paint on it. So I like I, the green. I yeah, like the I green, but it, yeah. Does it look Formula One? Maybe not. I originally rated the Sauber relatively high because one of the first cars to come out, and I was like, "Oh, it's a bit different." And then everything else came out as carbon fiber. And now it's not a bit different. So I retract <laughs> my statement that I made on WhatsApp a few months ago. I, I don't like the statement. You guys are not going to be happy with me. <laughs> 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 right. So moving on to ninth, uh, Alpine. Um, Sauber's too high already. It, <laughs> it's carbon fiber it's it's blue it's pink but you know i think what's hurt them is launching it alongside the uh the hypercar which was a, a proper good blue livery this is just carbon fiber a splash of corporate blue and a splash, splash of spon- sponsor pink as well they could have done so much better with that like the entire team really. the other thing that hurt them is they did a lot of social media teaser images of pink camouflage and everybody got really excited and like oh this is going to be different this is going to be cool and it came out and there's zero pink camouflage on it and then they went into a kind of recovery mode of oh we're just hiding what's underneath which is a dreadful way to launch a livery oh we're, we're going to tease a livery that doesn't exist and it's actually underneath the livery like that that's terrible so i actually like the alpine but spotted in testing it looks like it has more blue on it than the launch car did i think they've taken it to heart so i disagree with your alpine rating because they're fixing it the, the other funny thing is using camouflage to hide what's underneath was well, it's carbon fiber <laughs> apparently so it's not that much it's not really hiding that much but the other thing that hurt them i guess is just how good that sort of 2021 era alpine mm. livery was you know a metallic blue that was all over the french flag at the back that was almost a perfect livery really for alpine at least exactly moving on to eighth then and uh, i've gone for williams here again it's just carbon fiber and blue um they do score points though because of uh integrating the frank williams logo across the engine cover um i do think that's a nice nod to their history on that one 
I think they get uh, I mean, I think it's very Williams in that it's <laughs> fine. It's an okay livery <laughs> for an okay car. Uh, and I would absolutely agree with you. Yeah, I suppose the nice thing is, like you say, that integration of the Frank Williams logo, it's nodding, harking back to the history of like being overt like that what, 2011, 2012, like fake Rothmans livery, which was quite cool when it yeah. launched, but that very quickly became old. So just a nod to the past rather than trying to recreate it. I think that's very good for Williams. That's what they should be doing going forward anyway. Moving on to seventh then. Um, and this one surprised me, if I'm honest. It's uh, what everybody seems to be calling RB, um, which is not Red Bull. It's the Visa Cash App. Red Race, racing bulls f1 team but no one's calling That's them that even though their email addresses say it but i didn't say that yeah i'm going for <laughs> worst worst team name in history uh, is that one uh, and i'm quite confident to put that out on record i actually think this livery isn't as bad as you think i think it, it, okay. it does look a little bit uh, a little bit 90s backmarker and as somebody who was a fan of 90s backmarkers I'm entirely okay with it. You know, you would you'd not be surprised to see this livery on a minority in 1995. Scattergun some random like Italian furniture store sponsors on it and change the <laughs> colours up a bit. It is a minority from 1995, really. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Roberto Moreno when you need him? <laughs> I think what's hurt this livery for me is that the, the Alpha Tauri version of this was really good and they just yeah. ruined that by sticking the, the red and white over it. Yeah. Um, so again, it's it. So what you could have won. Uh, we're a completely different team to what we were before, but we're named the same as the main team, and we've got the livery of the predecessor as well. So there you go. Um, sixth, I've gone for Mercedes on this one. Um, I'll be honest, I don't like the the silver flash on the nose and the rest of the car being black. Um, pick one or the other, or even maybe just make the entire top of the car silver and the lower half of the car black. Um, but yeah, not one. That I actually, I quite like it. I quite like the Mercedes livery this year. Um, I, I always preferred the silver to the black. I think black can be a bit of a racing car cliche. So the silver was great, and to to see a little bit of the silver, you know, whenever you see the car coming head on towards you, and you do see that silver nose, it's at least really, really distinctive. I really like the livery this year. Yeah, it's grown on me, to be fair. When I first saw the launch, it's like, what have they done there? It's just a bit of silver on top and the rest is sort of carbon fiber, black or whatever. But I think what we saw what in uh, 2022 when they went back to the silver from having the black car for those couple of years, the silver looked quite dated almost. You know, it sort of remind of that Hamilton-Rosberg era, and, yeah, going backwards a bit. The black always felt better to me and it was Nice to see them go back to that last year, but they they had to do something with it this year, I think, especially to break away from, you know, they've made a big concept change. The car has to look different in more than just the side pods. So I think the silver works quite well. Maybe they'll tweak it a bit as we go. Moving on to fifth, and I've got McLaren there. Again, it's carbon fibre, but the orange stands out higher. Um, McLaren have made that colour their own again, and I think it works really well. Um, I've put them in the middle of the list because I've got no doubt they'll do what they did last year and change their livery 16 times across the 24 races. So who knows what it'll actually be by the end of the season. Yeah, and What it took me a while to actually notice with the McLaren is that baby blue bit's just gone entirely. Yeah. So is it, it's actually, this, it's, I thought it was the same as last year, but no, it's actually quite different. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
yeah, I think they've taken off the they've taken off the worst bits of last year's livery and um, sold them to Alpine instead. <laughs> <laughs> they still got the chrome wheels though, which is it's interesting. Yeah, it's not good. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun bit of branding. It's a good use I mean, of a logo. As a very, very, very minor digression, if we're going to talk about wheels, the best wheels in recent years were Alphatari in the last couple of years when they had the white wheels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, major point. Love a white wheel. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a podcast on its own as well, white wheels. Uh, fourth place, I've gone for Red Bull. Um, it's the same as always, but it is becoming, you know, an iconic livery. We talk about the, the JPS liveries, the Marlborough liveries, the Rothmans liveries. You know, they became iconic because they were the same year after year. We got used to them. And I think it is the same for the Red Bull now. Kudos for them for not taking the paint off. Yeah, I think they've, uh, you know, for, that livery has become an iconic one because you think back to those early Red Bull designs where they tried to put the can <laughs> as the paint Very briefly, on yeah. the car. Yeah, you know, those kind of like mid 2000s, late, late 2000s, you know, like thinking back to like RB1, RB2. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, they, they would be absolutely mad to change it given how iconic it I is. Mean, Red Bull have done some great liveries over the years, to be fair, as well. Thinking of like the, the Coulthard Superman and Star Wars ones at Monaco, the testing liveries with the camo and stuff like that in the sort of Ricardo era. And yeah, their their main livery is just iconic at this point. It's why mess with it? It's a perfect bit of branding. Exactly. Exactly. Third place then is Aston Martin. I really love that green. It's a lovely green. I think they've refined it since they brought it back as well. And it's no longer looking quite as black on TV pictures. Um, yeah, no complaints on that. Now they've got rid of the, the BWT as well and it's gone back to the, the lime green Aston racing. It's much yeah, better. Can't argue that at all. Aston Martin, it's just a classic look these days already already yeah which um i'm sure you're working out now it's between two of them <laughs> so we've got ferrari and salva and uh i won't go with number two first Oof. i'll reveal number one first i think the best livery this year is the ferrari yeah. i would probably agree and it's it's it even though everybody knows that the ferrari will be red and it will be the same red as it was last year. For every once in every twenty years, they might change the red. But I think those those yellow stripes they just make it look yeah. great. The question with Ferrari is: Yes, it's going to be red. It's going to look like a Ferrari. It's going to be very cool. But are they going to cock it up somehow, like with a random bit of white <laughs> or that weird little black on the side pod? Yes, uh, last year where it was sort of cut out around one of the sponsor logos. This the mission winnow green. All, all that, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but but this year, yeah, they've sort of aligned to the hypercar and Formula One liveries a bit and it's for the it's been to the benefit of both programmes, I think. The the Formula One car looks great. I think the only thing they could have improved on it for me is they've got red wheel covers on there. If they'd have made them gold, I think that's it. They're, they're, that's and I think, you know, crown yeah. champions now for me. Yeah, and there's a bit of red that extends over the front wing, or there was on the launch car at least. I haven't paid too much attention in testing. That could go away, I think, if it hasn't already. But yeah, so there's always improvements with Ferrari. There always will be on every single level, apparently. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very Ferrari to just go very slightly sideways at the end, actually. So. Okay, so that's the uh, the twenty twenty four liveries ranked. I I'm very I disappointed. totally totally disagree. 
Yeah, like, I'm, I'm in exact agreement with Scott. It's like I agree with most of these. I just if you move the sailboat down the list, just stick it near the bottom. Yeah, to the bottom. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to state your cause, state your reasoning for that now. You can't you can't so you can't not just you... blow past it. Uh-huh. Just go, oh, yeah, by the way, no, we're not even going to say what second was. We've we already figured it out, but yeah, we figured that out. But why? Yeah. When it was launched, I was like you. It's it's, it's carbon fiber. It's a very garish green and all that. But you know what? And this is why I always like to wait until I've seen them on track before making my my mind up. It looks so good on TV. It stands out. You can tell what it is straight away. It looks good. It's um, yeah. It and it's a huge departure from before as well. Not like uh, RB have tried where they try to relaunch the team but still hang on to some elements. I just uh, it's aggressive and it's just. I think it's Valtteri Bottas in livery form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a good argument. We can, I can, we can, uh... we can sit on that. One. That's good. Right, we've all successfully disagreed on the Sauber, so let's move on to some sports cars. Uh, hot off the press is this week's WEC Prologue has been delayed due to shipping issues. Political situation in the Red Sea caused shipping delays because WEC uses sea freight, as we all know. We kind of saw this earlier in the year with Creventic. Dubai 24 got pushed back a couple of weeks um, for the same reason. Uh, so the Prologue now kicks off on Monday the 26th, which is two days late. And they've moved it to three sessions on the Monday rather than two sessions on the Monday. And the fourth session will be on the Tuesday the next day, which kind of doesn't give the teams much prep time, actually. After the Tuesday finishes, it finishes about Tuesday lunchtime, um, prologue finishes, then you've only got a couple of days until free practice one of the Qatar um, uh, first round of the WEC. So, you know, if only there was a calendar app that you could all use to keep up with this stuff, but... It does seem that that's now set in stone. Two days late for that. If only we had a logistics expert that could uh, talk, could weigh in on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sea freight's been broken around there for, for quite a while now. Obviously, the various wars going on in that area. Um, it, it, it's kind of inevitable. Uh, like you say, um, we saw this with Creventic. They had to push uh, their race back a couple of weeks. Uh, the problem is these ships probably would have left six to eight weeks ago. Um, so by the time they knew it was going to be a problem for Creventic, there's not a lot they could do about it. Um, but I mean, at the same time we saw last year, I think it was last year, Hass actually arrived late to the F1 test due to logistics issues in the area and they had to be given extra time to run. So even if they'd gone by air freight, I don't think it's uh, something that would have necessarily mitigated it. Um, but yeah, they'll get around it. It's a couple of days, like I say, it'll tighten up the time between the... Uh, was it the prologue officially called, isn't it? Between the prologue and uh, and the Qatar Airways, Qatar eighteen twelve or whatever the Qatar racing Qatar is called by the Qataris. So uh, yeah, I don't think it will cause any major issues from there. Uh, and I think I, as well, it was only the Cadillacs that were delayed. I believe everybody else is actually there. There's apparently a handful of GT3s that are delayed as well. But I Cadillacs think it's the Corvettes. I think it's, so cool it's all, all <laughs> the USC for it. Yeah. Yes, correct. <laughs> I, I don't imagine this is really going to be a big issue. It's just so that people don't turn on on the weekend and go, oh, where's the WEC? Nah, it's not there. Check the racing line. Yeah, it's up there's, there's only so much they can actually delay the prologue because the race is the weekend after it, isn't it? So at a certain point, they're just going to be extending the race weekend rather than moving the prologue. Yeah, 
that doesn't give the teams much time to whatever they learn in the prologue. You don't get much time to implement it before it's the race. I just, I just yeah. checked the calendar on on the app. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing that we're going to cover is complicated. Uh, it's more complicated than it should yeah. be, but it's a calendar-related thing, so it fits with our theme perfectly. And that is the NLS slash VLN slash NES slash ADAC slash AVD. Everybody appears to be involved in this one. Um, I'm going to get some of this wrong. Yeah, explain this to me like I'm five, because I've heard the story probably about five times now. I've forgotten it every single time, and it's changed since it was last explained to me. So go. Cool. I'm going to get some of this wrong. <laughs> it will change tomorrow anyway. It's fine. We'll go with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So previously we had uh, the series called VLN. They named their series VLN, and the governing body was also VLN. They renamed. So these are all race. These are all GT3 series that race at the uh, Nurburgring Nordschleife, yes. which we do like. GT3 is Nordschleife. Exactly. Top stuff. They renamed their series a couple of years ago to NLS, Nurburgring Langstracker series. So VLN's the governing body of the NLS. All good. Separate to that, there's ADAC running the Nürburgring 24 hours, and people tend to think these are the same thing, but they're actually not. They're actually kind of unrelated. They're closely related, but also unrelated at the same time. For 2024, it appears that the Nürburgring owners have gotten a bit greedy and have decided that they want a piece of this, despite hosting everything. They don't actually have their own series and not involved in any of that. So they've gotten together with an organizer called AVD, who have organized series in Germany, but not quite on the level of what NLS is, uh, the scale of what NLS is. So they've decided to create the NES, the Nürburgring Endurance Series. And the format was basically identical to the NLS. It was basically a land grab kind of thing. Of, we're just going to recreate this series as the NES, and we're going to take everything over, and it will be ours now. And it didn't quite work out like that, because the NES... Uh, sorry, VLN, the, the original series, took them to court. Um, Norbergring tried to limit access to the Norbergring and denied VLN their ability to run NLS races. So it got a bit silly like that. The court stepped in and VLN won the court action. The Nordschleife has now been declared, quote, an essential facility similar to railroad or energy infrastructure for which specific laws apply which means that NLS is allowed now to have their races at the Nürburgring. It's hard to argue against Nordschleife being essential. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as, as a car person, a motorsport fan, it is an essential exactly. part of life. So good move on the German course. Yes. We'll come back to that good move, though, because there's an asterisk with it. There was a couple <laughs> of appeals back and forth because the legal nonsense got in the way and they were doing things like, OK, you've now got access to it, but the dates that we're going to give you are unreasonable and things like that. So it was a bit of a back and forth. After all the appeals have, have kind of flattened out here, it's been decided that VLN will get five slots for six races. So that's a double header weekend in there somewhere. And the NLS is also back, and they're also going to get um, the NLS is back. NES is still going ahead, and they're also going to get five slots of six races. So what it appears to be is we'll get two identical series running in parallel at the Nurburgring, which sounds like a good thing. Is it sounds like yeah, more GT threes, more Nordschleife? Ex- good news, exactly. right? Exactly. But no, but tell me why it's not. No, it can't be as simple. <laughs> We're not allowed to have simple stuff, especially if, when it comes to Nurburgring. The teams can't afford to run both, so they're going to have to pick one. So obviously, series are going to have to be 
kind of petitioning the teams which one to run. Yeah. Because we've gone from what eight races over the course of the year to potentially twelve, yeah, and plus, it's already an expensive series to run in. Plus so, the Nurburgring, yeah. twenty-four, plus the plus qualifying events for that. So it actually plus becomes a, like it's almost a, the length of an F one calendar to run all these events. Wow, yeah. So the teams are kind of siding with the original VLN organizers NLS series, and there's a lot of kind of people behind the scenes on why that is and the politics of who's running what and all that stuff. But cru- Wasn't it something about the marshals as well? Yeah, crucially, the Nurburgring marshals are saying they won't support NES, the new series. They're going to support the original. And if you've got no marshals, you've got no race. So as it stands at the moment, we've got two series, six races each, plus the Nurburgring 24 and its qualifying races. It's likely that only one of these series will survive the year, and it's likely that it will be NLS, which it looks like they're also going to rename back to VLN just for added fun. And the core order to allow VLN to run on the Nurburgring is only valid for one year. So this fight will happen again. This was a core order to kind of unstick the situation quickly to make sure that everybody can run next year. This is going back to court at some point this year, probably early, to redecide for 2025. I would say I'm open to questions, but I'm not going to know the answer to them because it's a mess. So what are we expecting to happen then? Teams to run in VLN, mm-hmm. marshals to support the VLN events. Mm-hmm. The other one, the acronym of which I've already forgotten. That would be NES. The other side, the NES, probably won't have any entries in it who's who's running the n24 the n24 is run by adac i believe so that's actually a completely so that's a standalone thing again so that's not impacted by teams deciding to run in one series or the other everyone will run at the n24 it has like we've seen in the past it has had an impact though because obviously the permit and ring license regulations generally you have to do your uh, vlm races beforehand in order to get your license to compete in the 24 so they've announced this year that simply taking part in the qualifying races will qualify you for your permit slash license to take part in the end. So they've taken themselves out of the argument basically, entirely, yeah. basically. You're running the ADAC run ones, oh, you'll get your license. You don't have to go and do the VLS this time. Yeah, that's kind of fair. It's fair, and I presume that's also a safeguarding measure, just like because they don't know who's going to win this battle. We could end up at round one and VLN doesn't run, and the rules still say you need a VLN experience to run in the Nürburgring. The, the fun thing here is it's... The court stuff doesn't matter. Who has rights doesn't really matter. What really matters is where are the marshals going to go. Yeah. As volunteers, you know, our beloved Orange Army, they hold the power here because right. they're not being paid. You know, you maybe one side actually does start to pay them, and that might sway them, but they do it for the passion of the sport. It, I think it was quite telling that they immediately sided with VLN and the original mm-hmm. series. And the the other thing we talk about marshals, like even if they do decide to support NES, is like you're you're doubling the amount of weekends that they've got to cover as yeah. unpaid volunteers. Yeah. That's yeah. not sustainable. So I think that's kind of covered that mess. But we're going to revisit that at some point because we're probably still a couple of months away for the first race. I think the first race might be April. If only I had an app to check that. First race will be April. <laughs> Let's see. So a couple of months away from dealing with that. But unless we've got anything else to cover this weekend, I think that wraps up this first episode. What do you think? Wrap it up. Yeah. yeah. Well, in which case, the last thing we're going to do is have a quick look forward at the events that are coming up. So by the time this podcast is released, the next set of events will be the opening round of Formula 1, Formula 2 and Formula 3 at Bahrain. 
Uh, we've got the WEC at Qatar, and that's the first time it's been there for the not only the opening, but the first time it's been to Qatar. The eighteen hundred and twelve kilometres. Yeah, for look, not sports washing reasons at all. Let's not let's not make enemies. I, I had to look that one up because I assumed it was to do with a year, and eighteen twelve was a year, but it's not. The Qatar National Day is the eighteenth of December. 18th, so it seems a little. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Try and get the event on the eighteenth of December or something like that. But no, we're not. It, it, it's how you squeeze even more Qatariness into the Qatar Airways Qatar World Endurance yep. event. Brought to you by Qatar, etc. The first thing to note about uh, the F1 event at Bahrain and WCA Qatar is because of Ramadan, they're being run on the Saturday. So both races are on Saturday and they both kind of overlap each other, which is not great, but yes. whatever, we can go with it. Uh, Definitely need an app with custom notifications so you remember, because that's the kind of thing I will not remember. We do need an app, if only we had one. Uh, all three NASCAR series are at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Um, Actually, no, they're not. They're at Las Vegas. Again, if only I had an app. They're actually at uh, Atlanta Motor Speedway as we're recording this. Um, the Winter Series, which is something that I wasn't really aware of until I started building the racing line. The Winter Series involves Formula Winter, which is Formula 4 cars, GT Winter, which is GT3 cars, GT4 Winter, which unsurprisingly is GT4 cars, and Prototype Cup Winter Series, which is little LMP3 cars, which is quite good fun. They're all at Aragon, and uh, next weekend, which is quite good fun. I've not seen much racing for Aragon. And the great thing is that that's free on YouTube. Uh, the link to watch that is actually in the Racing Line app under the links section. So that gives us 20 races next week when you include all the winter series because they do multiple races per series. And there's about 27 hours of race time alone, not including all the qualifying, which us geeks are bound to watch for Formula One as well. So with that, don't forget that the Racing Line app can give you start times for every one of these events in your time zone, uh, notifications for every session at a, an offset that you pick. If you want a notification an hour before the race, you can do that. If you want it 10 minutes before the race, you can do that. If you want it three days, 17 minutes, and you can do that. So don't miss out on any of it and get the Racing Line from the App Store today. <laughs> 